The line in that song, when this passing world is over, is a sobering thought, isn't it? To recognize that there's going to come a time when not just the world's going to end, but you and I are, <laughs> right? Uh, one out of one of us, unless the Lord tarries, is uh, going to die. Uh, so that begs the question, why do you do what you do? What is the vision for your life? I reflected on that question this week as we left, uh, Carol and I left on Sunday to go to Philadelphia to be with my son and his wife and three of our grandchildren. We just got back yesterday afternoon. Uh, A wonderful time with them. Uh, 48 hours ago, I was in 60 degree weather walking the parks of Philadelphia and uh, woke up this morning to 14 degrees. So that was quite a difference. One of the ways in which I uh, am aware of this passing world is over is whenever I spend extended time with my grandchildren, inevitably one of them says something like this, Grandpa, you're old. And it helps me realize that the days I have left are far fewer than the days I have had behind me. And how might I use them in the most treasured way possible? That's, that's a good question, isn't it? Now, last week, we looked in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 at the privileges and responsibilities of Christian leadership, uh, particularly on the issues of being paid for the proclamation of the gospel. This morning, we're going to look at the second half of 1 Corinthians 9, so I invite you to open your Bibles there, 1 Corinthians 9, 15 to 27, where we will be looking at the sacrifice and the discipline of Christian leadership. The sacrifice and discipline of Christian leadership. And in case you think, well, I'm not a Christian leader, so this doesn't apply to me, you will soon see that if you are a Christian, there will be this sacrifice and discipline that is needed for you as well. Um, So, In my thinking through that question, why do I do what I do? What is my vision for my life? Uh, uh, I came up with a couple of things that are just personal that I thought I would share with you. I want to speak the truth of God's Word. We have a generation that is uh, uh, coming up that does not understand there's such a thing as true truth, and especially the truth of God's Word. And I want to bring the truth of God's Word to the world. I, I want to bless the next generation of Christians. That doesn't mean that I don't like relating to Christians my age. I, I do. But my passion is for the next generation of young adults with families. I, I think that might be flavored a bit by the growing gap of generations here at East White Oak. Simply stated, We are getting older as a church, and that is an unsustainable trend, right? That's unsustainable. I want to spend the last years of my life welcoming people who are far from God into the family of God. 
I want to motivate people in the family of God to look beyond our own interests to be on mission to welcome such people. I want the messiness of welcoming people who are not Christians to the fellowship of God's people and have them be amazed by the welcome that they get. Men, women, boys, girls, atheists, Jews, Muslims, Hindus, Buddhists, LGBT, materialists, communists, all different races. I want them to be loved by a fellowship of God's people that is willing to forego their comforts for the sake of making Christ known to them. And you know if we're going to do that, both truth and love are needed. If only truth or if only love is present, then people are left in their sins. And that's the liberal church answer. They think that if they don't affirm wicked beliefs that they are being unloving. It's simply not true. But if only truth is present, people will never come or at least never come back. Far too frequently that's the conservative church's answer to simply be glad that they, whoever they are, never come to us. At least not in enough numbers to change us or affect us. It's easy to think that if we seek to do things to welcome those who are far from God, we'll be changing our beliefs, and that's just not true. Both truth and love are needed. And so what we're going to look at here in 1 Corinthians 9 is Paul's vision for ministry, which is very similar to what I just shared with you. Will you stand for the reading of God's word this morning? 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 15 through 27. Paul has been talking about the right that he had as an apostle to receive pay for his ministry, and then he also adds that he has not taken upon himself the privilege of asserting that right for himself. And so we pick it up in verse 15. But I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. For I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting. For necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I am still entrusted with a stewardship. What then is my reward? That in my preaching I may present the gospel free of charge, so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews... I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. 
I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Please have a seat. This morning we're looking at the refreshing of our personal vision the sacrifice and discipline of Christian leadership. Here in verses 15 through 18, Paul says that Christians who want to influence others and win Christ's prize are people who exercise restraint. Did you know that all of us are influencers? We all influence all the time. The question is not whether we will influence, The question is what we want to influence people toward. Paul's passion is Christ. His passion is not his rights, the assertion of his own preferences. His passion is Christ. And every one of us need to determine what God compels us to do. Hmm. What is it that is something that's compelling? For Paul, he would rather die, let alone exercise rights like eating food offered to idols or getting paid for his work, than have anyone deprive him of his ground for boasting in the cross of Christ alone. He's laser beam focused on influencing others toward the cross of Christ. And note, he's writing to Corinth, this cesspool of morality that's worse, if it's possible, than our own culture. Certainly worse than central Illinois culture. There's no ground for boasting, even in the great work that God has given Paul. It's a necessity. Necessity is laid upon him. He simply must do it. Such is his passion for truth and his love for lost people. Now, Paul's going to remember what the reward is. The reward is not praise from other people. The reward is not appreciation from the church at Corinth. If we were to look at 2 Corinthians, we'd find that out pretty quickly. It's not about appreciation that he'll get. It's not about earning points with God. It's not about uh, imposing his will, but rather the reward he has is freely serving God. Jesus, 
Just the joy of freely serving Christ. Verse 17, Paul freely does this work. If I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But even if he were not doing it freely, he still has been entrusted with what the scripture there in verse 17 calls a stewardship. Now, a stewardship is to guard something that belongs to someone else as though it were yours, knowing that it's not yours, okay? Guard something that belongs to someone else, knowing all the time that it's not yours, but doing it as though it is yours. Paul has a stewardship. It's the gospel. He's guarding it as though it were his own. It belongs to someone else, to Christ, and he knows that it's not his own. So you might say, well, what's the reward in doing that? Simply this, verse 18, in the proclamation of the good news of Jesus, he can make it free of charge so as to not make full use of his right in the gospel to be paid for it. His reward is to present the gospel in as unhindered a way as it possibly can be unchained, unleashed. So let's think about this for ourselves. Christians who want to influence others and win Christ's prize exercise restraint. Paul has restrained his own preferences, even his own rights, for the sake of the gospel. Some applications. We ought to give out the gospel as freely as we can, as freely as we can. If you're fairly new to East White Oak, you may be wondering, well, why doesn't East White Oak hold any fundraisers? You know, like, we got this people going to Sedine, why don't we have a, a cookie sale or a bake sale or something like that to raise money, to send them on their way? Well, there's a reason for that. It's not because we somehow see that fundraising is a, an evil thing. It is to be as unchained about the gospel as possible and that whatever we do is supported by the members of our church. It's also why we seek as much as possible where there sometimes it's unavoidable but there we seek as much as possible not to charge for events. The desire here is along the lines of the Apostle Paul, is it not? To say we want the gospel out there for people and not in any way unhindered where a person who doesn't know Jesus is feeling like they have to pay for the privilege of being a part of something we do. A second application is something for each one of us. Each of us needs to sort out exactly what we are influencing people toward. Every one of us are influencers. You could influence a person toward a political position, for example. That may be something that's easy to be drawn into. 
particularly in this day where things seem to be so divisive, or to influence people toward despair or negativity rather than influencing people toward Christ, toward the gospel, toward being a worshiper maturing in Christ, that people would see Christ in us, the hope of glory. Um, I didn't tell this story in the first service, but it came to my mind here, and I'll, I'll tell it to you now. Uh, one of the things that Carol and I enjoy doing at, in Philadelphia is going to the Philadelphia Museum of Art. You know, I've climbed the steps like Rocky, you know. Uh, but inside, there's some great art there. If you ever get the chance, I'd encourage you to do it. But um, Carol uh, lives this way of getting rid of anything that is in, trying to influence people in some direct and all about Christ and the gospel. About four years ago, maybe five, there was a, a docent at the museum. Do you know what a docent is? It's a person that stands there in the gallery telling you not to touch and stay away from the paintings, okay? That's, um, but Carol tries to make friends of all the docents at every uh, art museum, which makes our trips to art museums rather lengthy sometimes. <clears throat> but she met this gal and who was under extreme duress in her job. Her boss was really unhappy with her. Um, and Carol prayed with her, gave her some gospel literature, um, and then she took about a half hour to find that gal's boss to tell the boss how much she appreciated Sabina's work. Okay. A couple years later, we're at the Philadelphia Museum of Art, and guess what Carol does? She goes through the museum trying to find Sabina. They meet up, and it's just like uh, a lamb that's found its mother. I mean, shoom, you know, they're together, right? So then the other day, the, we have not been there for over three years because of the pandemic. We're there in a the museum. We're in this gallery. And Sabina runs up and throws her arms around Carol. And then around me, you know, and in the process of her conversation, Sabina's telling something, and she says, well, you know, mom, referring to Carol, she says, I just called you mom. A beautiful relationship is established that comes in very sporadic ways, but it's because... There's someone that I know and love very much whose sole passion in life is influencing people for Christ and the gospel. Uh, Christians who want to influence others and win Christ's prize use their freedoms for advancing the gospel. Um, we use our freedoms not for our own sense of feeling okay about ourselves, not for our own comfort, not for our own desires, but for advancing the gospel. 
Verse 19, Paul says he's free from all. That is, he is free from the tyranny of what others think of him. Now think about that for a moment because that is a, that is a chain that grabs us all very hard. The tyranny of what other people think about us. Paul's free from that. But Paul goes on to say that he's made himself a slave. That's what the word servant means here. I've made myself a slave to all that I might win more of them. Notice he's not talking about a slave to all the people in the church at Corinth. He's making, him a sla- he's making himself a slave to everybody in the world that he might win more of them to Christ. It's an interesting word, this word win, that I might win more of them. It means to influence toward, to gain passport into their lives, to help them embrace what is true and beautiful, the gospel of Jesus Christ. This slavery, verse 20, means taking on all of the restrictions of, for example, and Paul's going to give several examples here, all the restrictions of Judaism in order to avoid any offense about those relatively insignificant matters. Even though Christians are not themselves under the law, the goal is to win those under the law. So he says in verse 20, to the Jews, I became a Jew, taking on all of the various laws and restrictions in order to win Jews. Even though he himself knows he's not under that ceremonial law, the goal is to win those who are under it. So he's identifying with them. Sacrificing his freedoms for their sake, the sake of the lost. Verse 21. This slavery means taking on all of the ethical challenges of rubbing shoulders with those outside the Old Testament ceremonial law. That is, the Gentile world. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law. In other words, he forwent, is that a word? He came, it came about for him to forego <laughs> all of the things that were associated with his lifelong work as a Jew, studied under Gamaliel, one of the greatest of the Pharisee teachers, and he himself, a Pharisee of Pharisees. Do you realize how hard it is to give that up, those habits? Gave it up. Why? to win those who are outside that ceremonial law. Now, there are some parts of Gentile culture that are strange and even sinful. Paul's saying, verse 21, I'm not outside the law of God. I'm not going to go violate the law of God in doing this but I am going to live in as much a way as I can to love them, to connect them to the truth of the gospel, to win those not under the law. Verse 22, third example. To the weak, I became weak. Paul becomes weak. That is, if you look at chapter 8, the weak is the person who is Weak in the sense that he thinks that if he's eating food that has been offered to an idol, that he's really paying homage to an idol. And so Paul foregoes 
the eating of meat offered to idols, even though he knows it's nothing and he has the freedom to do so, he becomes weak. He doesn't eat the food offered to idols, nor, according to the beginning of verse 9, nor does he take pay because he has larger fish to fry. He wants the gospel exalted. And so we see the conclusion at the end of verse 22. I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. You know, this sounds easy from our distance to hear Paul say that. Yeah, 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 Paul became all things to all people in order to, by all possible means, he might win some. Sounds like easy from our distance. If we only knew all of the things associated with first century Judaism and Paul being totally wrapped up in that and intertwined in it in his everyday life and the pressures from inside the church on all those different directions. He was willing to give up even things commanded of Jews in the Old Testament like food laws in order to reach people for Christ. He didn't sin, but he was willing to give up whatever he could because he wanted to welcome people far from God. And that did not mean for him that the people far from God had to do all the moving. And sometimes I think that that's how we approach evangelism. We approach it as, you know, if they were sharp enough, they'd figure it out and they'd come to us. Paul says, I'll give it all up, all my rights, all my privileges, all my opinions to make the gospel known. Now, living out this gospel rather than living out human expectations for our lives is harder than it looks, it's going to appear inconsistent to zealots of human behavior. Think, for example, about people in the church who were very zealous Jews. They'll look at Paul living outside that ceremonial law, and what are they going to do? They're going to criticize him for it. On the other hand, let's say there's a Gentile believer looking at Paul, living when he's with people who do not know Jesus, who are Jewish, living every bit like they live, and they, that inconsistency is going to drive people in the church absolutely nutso. The reason why Paul does this is that the why of behavior, not the what of behavior, is what matters to Paul because nothing matters more to Paul than getting the true gospel to people. In fact, verses 22 and 23 show us just how passionate he is about that. I become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. Now, um, verse 22 has been an excuse for worldliness in recent years. That is, there are people who trot out this verse because what they are saying is, see, I'm going to live a worldly life, and in the process, what I'm doing is trying to win people to the gospel. 
Paul never says and never does anything sinful so that the gospel gets proclaimed. That's a contradiction of terms. If you're just wanting to live a worldly life, don't trot out this verse as your excuse for it. You see, the problem is that when you do that, you are not winning people to anything, let alone the gospel. Instead, you're winning yourself over to sin, and don't do that. It's not what this verse is saying. This verse is not a text telling us to adapt our message. There are people who would not only adapt their lives in order to be worldly, there are people that use the verse in order to adapt the message. We've got to massage our messaging here somehow. No, no, no. This is a text telling us to adapt our behavior and our lives with regard to those whom we want to win to Christ. We want them to know how much we love them, and we want them to hear the truth. Paul sees this as the passion of his life. Now we come to the end of this chapter. Christians who want to influence others and to win Christ's prize show discipline. Discipline for what purpose? The purpose, again, is to live a life of welcoming people who are far from God. You see, it's not about living the life we like with all of our preferences intact. Frankly, that's easy. It takes discipline to live with the purpose of making Christ known in a loving way, in the way of truth, knowing that you're going to receive criticisms from every corner for doing that. You'll get criticized by the world because your message is so exclusive. You'll get criticized by the church for someone's ox being gored. So, so Paul says, do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize, so run that you may obtain the prize? Run in a way to get the prize. The Corinthian games were the second most important games in Greece, and so Paul's using some athletic illustrations here. He's saying, run is a way, in the way to actually go for it, to go for winning rather than just merely existing. Discipline yourself for it. Don't settle for a half-hearted effort. Now, one of the things that's interesting here is that Paul has talked so far all about his own discipline and sacrifice as an apostle. Now, do you notice that it becomes imperative? That is, you run. (laughs) You Corinthian church, you run in this way to win the prize. So it's not like, okay, well, he's an apostle. He should do that. But that's not really incumbent upon all of us ordinary Christians No, 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 it is incumbent upon every one of us. Run in a way to win the prize. Don't settle for a half-hearted effort. Before the running contest, however, comes the training for the contest. Preparing to win is is, is just as important as winning, right? If you don't prepare to win, you will not win. So verse 25, every athlete exercises self-control in all things. Train in a way to run well. 
keep looking at that crown to win. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. Keep the end in view. And Paul does that in chapter 1, verse 8, chapter 4, verse 5, chapter 6, verses 2 and 9, chapter 15, verses 12 to 19, are all talking about with a view to the end. Our life is a vapor, friends. We don't know how long we'll live. We all think we have more length of days than we may imagine. Paul says, run now, train now with the goal of the forever crown. Then verse 26, participate in a goal-directed way. And here he gives two illustrations from athletics. I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. Now, when he says, run that you may obtain it, exercise self-control in all things, don't run aimlessly, this presumes, does it not, participation? It presumes that we're all in the race. We're not just watching other people We're participating. There are people who lack training. There are people who lack courage. There are people who lack awareness that we all participate. And then perhaps most importantly, there is this desire that we all be as comfortable as we possibly can. Too many Christians are not as purposeful as they could be. And so these two illustrations from sports... No aimless running. You know, you can run really fast, but if you don't run the course, you're not going to win. Has it ever occurred to you that that all the runners are… Think about the ridiculousness of this. You're all at the starting blocks. Boom, the gun goes off and the person goes running off this way. And they ran really fast, but they don't get the prize, do they? Because they didn't run the course. Just running doesn't cut it. There are a lot of people who are claiming to know Jesus who say so often just how busy they are, but what they are doing is relatively worthless. Second illustration, boxing. Not as one beating the air. You know, everybody can look like Muhammad Ali, right? Well, I can't, but, you know, I thought I would do an Ali shuffle here, but I'm not going to even try. No swinging wildly. No boxing just in the air, looking good, but not actually doing good. There are lots of people who are running in the Christian lives, are running very busy, but not running the course that God has for them. There are lots of Christians who are swinging, boxing, but they're just boxing air. They look good, but they're not actually making an impact. Instead, what Paul advocates for in verse 27 is purposeful even painful at the moment, sacrifice. I discipline my body and I keep it under control. 
This is not asceticism. It's not self-flagellation. It's not punishment for punishment's sake or because somehow that makes God feel good about you. That's not what this is about. There's nothing spiritual about the discipline itself. It's all about what the discipline can produce. You know, I've been watching the NCAA tournament and yesterday there was a guy who was the high point scorer in his game and they interviewed him after the game and this reporter was interviewing him and all he could do was weep. He had expended himself. And when he was able to mouth out a few words, he just talked about how much he and his team had sacrificed to get to that moment. And he was overcome with emotion. It wasn't about the discipline. We never saw the guy practice. We don't know what he did or didn't do. The same thing when we watch the Olympics. We don't see the hours and hours and hours and the pain of the discipline. Similarly in the Christian life. We don't see the hours and hours of prayer or of studying of the scriptures or of asking God to be used. The iceberg, right? We don't see all the stuff that's going on underneath the surface. End of verse 27. I discipline my body, keep it under control, lest after preaching to others I myself should be disqualified. It's possible that lacking such discipline for the purpose of the gospel proclamation, listen, is evidence of never having met the Master of never even knowing that you're in a contest. Now, it's not always true, but Paul is raising this as a possibility. There's other verses that describe other possibilities, but here he wants to say, if we lack this discipline, this passion for making Christ known, loving people and telling them the truth, if we don't have that, that is a possible evidence of never having truly met the master, of never even knowing that we're in a contest. After not living the discipline of an athlete, one gets disqualified from the race for not competing according to the rules. And this after having preached the gospel to others. Did you know, and I, have, I know people where this has happened, that a person can preach the gospel and have other people believe the gospel and become genuine Christians while the person who proclaimed the gospel never truly embraced the gospel themselves. Just because you know how to explain the plan of salvation does not mean that you know Jesus. Paul apparently is concerned for himself about this. And if Paul is concerned for himself about this, it should sober us in our own judgment of ourselves. Now, Paul's not talking here about the security of our salvation. The cross secures our salvation. But he is talking about our personal assurance of salvation which very much depends upon how we live. You know, there's all kinds of possibilities here. 
You can be saved and assured of it because you have a life that reflects it. You can be saved and not assured of it because you don't live a life that reflects it. You can be not saved and not assured of it because you don't live a life that reflects it. And here's the worst category of all in my judgment. You can be not saved and feel assured of it because you're not thinking very clearly or very biblically. That, I think, is the worst, most dangerous position to be in. So here's how we should think about these things as we close. What crown are you seeking? Pleasure, money, affirmation of others, ease, absence of pain? Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 2.19, what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before the Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you, people who have come to Christ through his ministry? That's his joy and hope and crown of boasting before the Lord Jesus. What areas of our lives need more directed discipline? What areas of our lives need more directed discipline if we're going to grow in our effectiveness as ambassadors for Christ? You may be running fast, but not on the right course. You may be boxing and looking amazing, but you're just beating the air. What is your vision for the years that you have left on this earth? What changes are you willing to make of your preferences in order to be that effective ambassador? What changes are we willing to make as a church to welcome, love, bring truth to people in desperate need of all three? As I look at the needs of central Illinois, and the need of our own fellowship, the great need of the hour is conversion growth. People coming to know Jesus Christ. Too long people in churches have been content with transfer growth, just changing people. Rather than seeing people come to know Christ, Paul says... I endure everything for the sake of the elect that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Enduring everything. Change is hard. It grows harder as we grow older. I shared that a few years ago in a message. One way of adapting and embracing and enjoying change is to just keep changing stuff. That can help you. Like change the way you go to work. Change some of your habits just for the sake of changing in order to get yourself used to adapting to change. But perhaps an even more important way, of course, is to change with a goal, with a vision for your life. And I hope you will embrace the same vision that the Apostle Paul has of doing it for the sake of people who do not yet know Jesus as their Savior. Let's pray. Lord, today we ask that you would help us. Um, help us in, in the sacrifice and discipline of being Christians. Not to run just to be busy, not to box and just hit in the air, 
but to discipline ourselves that we may love those who are far from you and that we may gain passport into their lives that we may bring the truth of the gospel to them. Oh, Heavenly Father, use us individually and as a church in this way for your glory. Now, I know that there may be people in this room who've never put their faith in Jesus. Perhaps even this word, I myself should be disqualified, has caused some concern in their heart. I pray, Lord, that you would open their hearts to the gospel today and that they would affirm by faith, yes, Jesus, I am a sinner. I am broken and lost without you. I know, Jesus, that you died on the cross for me. I believe that what you did at the cross paid for my sin. I believe you rose from the dead and I commit my life to you, asking you to make the changes that are necessary in my life because I'm powerless to do it. Oh God, be pleased to bring salvation to those who are far from you. And we pray for our own community that gospel proclaiming churches all throughout our region may be used in your hands to have an amazing and powerful, glorious impact on our communities for the gospel of Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.